Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We are on this big subject of the order of salvation. And last week, we started the doctrine of sanctification. And I said last week that we're going to have to break this up in probably three or four weeks just because there's so many aspects to what it means to grow in Christ. And so we are positionally holy because of what God has done for us in salvation. But I also talked about progressive sanctification progress. So here, here's kind of the, the big definition of progressive sanctification. While we cannot lose our salvation, we still struggle with sin. The Holy Spirit will progressively and continuously make us more holy and rid the pollution of sin in our lives. So we're talking about a progress, your progress in growth to be more holy, to look more like Jesus, to be more obedient, to be more Christ-like. And so last week, we looked at two big truths. Number one, we talked about how it's a struggle. We looked at Galatians chapter 5 and said, the flesh is against the spirit, and there's this struggle with the remaining sin in your life, and so this process of sanctification is going to be a struggle. And the second thing we looked at was tied to that, that we have to be killing sin. Romans 8.13 says, put to death, execute, kill sin in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, I probably should have started with this last week, but I'm starting and I'm going to address it tonight. And this is something that it may be a little bit confusing to you, but it's very, very important. And so here's what we're going to talk about tonight, just this one truth about sanctification. So here's where we're going tonight in a sentence. Sanctification involves obedience to God's law as a rule for living. God's law. Now, when I say God's law, what I'm saying is the Ten Commandments. And you're like, wait a minute, I thought we're not under law anymore, we're under grace, and the Ten Commandments don't matter anymore, and what, what are you talking about, obedience to the Ten Commandments? Well, even though we're still Christians, we, we have a relationship to the Ten Commandments, and that's what we're going to talk about tonight. So we need to understand a distinction between what, how the Bible divides up. The, if you can sum up the division of the Bible between two big categories, there is law and gospel. And it's, and it's not just gospel's New Testament, law is Old Testament. That's, that's not a way to look at it. There are laws in the New Testament. There is gospel in the Old Testament. So what is the gospel? So the gospel is anything, not anything, but it's what God alone has done. The key word there is what God has done. It's the historical reality of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and God's sovereign work to save sinners by His grace alone. So gospel means what God has done on our behalf through Jesus. Okay, so Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the gospel is what saves us. It's the message of hope that we have in what God has done for us in Christ. And here's an interesting passage of Scripture, Romans 16.25, Now to him who's able to strengthen you, 
according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. You are strengthened by hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ preached every week. What God has done for you strengthens you. And what is the gospel? 1 Corinthians 15, 1-3, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, by which you're being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and there should be that He was buried on the third day and rose again according to the Scriptures. I don't know why the rest of the verse was cut off. So, I, th- I know you guys know this. Gospel tells us what God has done. Key word, D-O-N-E. What God has done for us in Christ. Jesus meets the perfect standard. Jesus is our substitute. Jesus is our Savior. He gives us His righteousness. So, gospel is what has God done. Law. Law and gospel. If gospel means what has God done, law tells us what we ought to do. Gospel is all about what God has done. Law is all about what we must do to meet God's standard. And if we confuse the two, you will be very messed up in your Christian life. Now, we are going to talk about the Ten Commandments tonight. We're not going to go into detail as far as what each commandment is, but I want to ask you a question that I always ask when we start talking about the Ten Commandments. How do the Ten Commandments start? I'm hearing some of you. How do the Ten Commandments start? And most of you are saying, you shall have no other gods before me. (laughs) Wrong. How do the Ten Commandments start? I want to show you. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And it's a trick question. That is the first commandment. I didn't ask what was the first commandment. I said, how did the Ten Commandments start? It's a trick question. You're right. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods. But I want to show you how Moses frames for us the Ten Commandments. So in Exodus chapter 20, you have verses 1 and 2 before you actually get to the Ten Commandments in verse 3. So how, what's the setup, what's the introduction to the Ten Commandments? So let's read that together. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 and 2. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Then you shall have no other gods before me, and then you have the list of the Ten Commandments. So how do the Ten Commandments begin? What does God remind them of? What's the first thing God says there? I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the one who has done two things for you. What what does it say there in your Bible, verse 2? I brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now let's just think about that. What was Israel's life like in Egypt, in slavery? They were in physical bondage to Pharaoh, the harsh taskmaster, and God delivered them. Did they get themselves out of slavery? No. How did God do it? God did it by means of the blood of the Passover lamb and the parting of the Red Sea. So here, think about it this way. 
God saved them by grace alone through the Passover and the Red Sea. God delivered them. Now let me ask you a question. Is that law or is that gospel? Is that something you have to do or is that something God has done? It's gospel because verses 1 and 2 tell us we don't have any commands for us to do yet. Before the Ten Commandments even start, God is reminding us of what He has done to save us. So we need to understand that God has graciously saved the Israelites by grace alone, and then He gives them the law. Now, this is how God always operates. Grace is what God does. Law is what we are supposed to do. So it's only after saving them that God gives them the law. Now let me ask you a question. Does Israel obey the Ten Commandments in order to get saved? Or has God already saved them and He gives them the Ten Commandments as a rule to live by? What's the order? God saves them and gives them the law as a rule to live by. God does not say, hey, what, if, what would happen if the order was reversed? Let's say they're in Egypt, and God comes to them in Egypt and sends Moses to them in Egypt and says, I'm going to give you the Ten Commandments, okay? Here are the Ten Commandments. You must obey them perfectly, and if you obey them perfectly, then I'll release you out of Egyptian slavery. Would Israel ever be able to do that? Would they ever be saved? No, God saves them first by the blood of the Lamb, and then He gives them the law. So we need to remember that the Ten Commandments come after salvation in the life of Israel. And we're going to talk a little bit about the role of the Ten Commandments to us today as Christians, but we need to remember something about the Ten Commandments. It is God's moral law, and it's unalterable. What does unalterable mean? You can't change it. Why? God gave a lot of laws in the Old Testament, but He only wrote down with His finger the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone, showing that they are to be binding above all of His other laws because He wrote it with His own finger. No, nothing else can be said of God writing it with His own finger. Exodus 31, 18. And he gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Now don't ask me how that happened. I can just kind of picture Moses up there, like a blank tablet, and this, you know, I don't know how it happened, but God etched it with his own hand. And God is spirit, so I'm not exactly sure how all that works. Deuteronomy 9.10, And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words as the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. So, we're talking about sanctification tonight. Okay, so let's just ask a basic question. Do you obey the Ten Commandments in order to get saved? No. But... As a Christian, do you still obey the Ten Commandments as a rule for living your, your Christian life? Yes. Okay? 
But we are God's people first in order to worship and live for him. So God has saved us as a, tro- as a treasured possession, 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are God's people, and because he's called us out of darkness into light, we then live for his glory. And so what's the order of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10? Let's make sure we don't reverse the order here. What does verses 8 and 9 say? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. Now, are we saved by grace or by works? Grace. But then look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So let me ask you a very simple question. You're not saved by good works. You're saved by grace, but you're saved for good works. What are good works? How do you know a work is good or not? Does Paul give you a definition there of what a good work is? I'm going to argue later on that the Ten Commandments tell you what good works are. Okay? So, God has graciously given us His Ten Commandments. It is the eternal binding rule for living, and we don't have to guess what God expects of us. We obey these out of gratitude and joy and not a burden or a fear. So we don't have to guess what God expects. The Ten Commandments are very clear. How are the Ten Commandments divided? Commandments 1 through 4 are related to God. Commandments 5 through 10 are related to your neighbor. So if you think about the Ten Commandments, it's very simple. Love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the sum of the Ten Commandments. The first four being love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second half of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't murder, don't covet, don't steal, don't lie, don't commit adultery. Those types of things. Now, There are three ways or three uses of the Ten Commandments that we see being used in the Bible and for us today. So these so when we talk about the Ten Commandments, there's there's ways in which we relate to the Ten Commandments depending on who we are. So there's a first use, there's a second use, there's a third use. Okay, this has historically been how Protestant evangelicals have understood the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of people. Okay, so here's the first use. Okay, use number one. This is very important. The first purpose of the Ten Commandments is to expose our sin and crush us in despair for breaking God's law. It's supposed to stop us dead in our tracks and show us how utterly helpless we are to obey them and to crush us with guilt. Because God's standard is what? In obedience to his law. Is it 100%? Yeah, it's perfect. You have to have perfect obedience. You have to have perpetual obedience. You've got to do it all the time. And it's got to be personally something you do. So the first use of the law is for non-Christians, okay? This is for the non-Christian. 
This is for the unsaved person. The role of the Ten Commandments and the first use of the law is for a non-Christian to see his or her utter inability to keep God's standard with perfection and to crush them and to show them, I am toast, I am dead, I can't do this, I, I don't measure up to God's standard, I fall short of God's glory, I need a Savior. So the purpose of the law is to show them how desperately they fall short of God's standard. That's the role of the Ten Commandments. And we have some verses that teach us this. So Romans chapter 3, verse 20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law gives you knowledge of sin. So let me give you an example. What are some of the Ten Commandments? Let's just, you got your Bible open to Exodus 20 there? Let's just look at them. Number three, you shall have no other gods before me. Commandment two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Number three, don't take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth commandment, Sabbath day, keep it holy. Fifth commandment, honor your father and mother. Sixth commandment, don't murder. Seventh commandment, don't commit adultery. Eighth commandment, don't steal. Seventh commandment, don't bear false witness or lie. And then the tenth commandment, don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Okay. So you go up to a person on the street that's a non-Christian, and you ask them the question, do you think you're a good person? And what are most people going to say? Yeah, I'm a good person. I'm pretty good. I'm not an axe murderer or anything, and I don't cheat on my taxes, and I'm a pretty good person. And then you go on and say, okay, that's great. You're admitting that you're a good person. Can I ask you a few questions about how good you are? Well, sure. Are you familiar with the Ten Commandments? Well, not really. I know some of them. Well, you may not know the Ten Commandments. You may not even believe in the Ten Commandments, but these are God's law. Can I just ask you some questions about the Ten Commandments, okay? So um, let's just ask you a question. Have you ever lied before? Well, sure, everybody lies. Even a little white lie. Of course I've lied. Okay, so you've broken one of God's commandments. So what does that make you if you've lied? Well, it makes me a liar, I guess. Okay, so you admit that you're a liar. Okay, have you stolen anything? Well, when I was a little kid, I, did, 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 I haven't robbed a bank, but yeah, I've stolen a pencil from my coworker. Or I cheated on my time card. Stole some time from my employer. Okay, what does that make you? Well, I guess that makes me a thief. Oh, okay, so you admit you're a liar and you admit you're a thief. Okay, have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever done that? Oh, yeah, I use, I use the Lord's name as a cuss word all the time. Okay, so you know what the Bible calls that? That calls it blasphemy. So, so you've already admitted you're a liar, you're a thief, and you're a blasphemer. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever committed adultery? Oh, no, I'd never cheat on my wife. Never, I'd never commit adultery. Okay, Jesus says if you lust with a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Have you ever lusted after a woman? Well, yeah. Okay, so what does that make you? That uh, makes me a hot-blooded red American, you know, hot-blooded male, you know, all-American male. No, what does that make you? I guess that makes me an adulterer at heart. Okay, so that's just for the commandments, and you've already admitted that you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a blasphemer, and you're an adulterer at heart. Now, what's that person going to start feeling at, at that moment? You've started to put labels to their sins that maybe they never thought of before. And then you ask them the next question, okay, if this is God's standard, 
would you be innocent or guilty? And what would they say if they're being honest? I'd be guilty. Okay, if you can get that far with somebody, it's good. Because sometimes they try to justify themselves and say, well, God grades on a curve and God doesn't really care. Let's just, be, let's just say this person's honest and they're under conviction. I'm guilty. And then you ask the next question, you drop the bomb on them, okay? Okay, you just said you're guilty. If you admit you're guilty, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? And what do they have to say? I guess I'm going to go to hell. Okay, so you're, you've admitted that you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a blasphemer, you're an adulterer at heart, you admit you're guilty, and you admit that you deserve hell. Does that bother you? Does that concern you? Are you worried about your future? And at that point, they should be coming under conviction. And what do you do at that point? You don't just leave them hanging, do you? You're like, okay, I've got good news for you. Then you go into the gospel. Okay. So you've given them the law, You've given them the Ten Commandments to expose their sin, to crush them, to bring them under conviction so that you can come in afterwards and give them the gospel. The, the law leads to a knowledge of sin because most people don't wake up thinking that they're ultimately sinning against God. I think most people know they have a little bit of guilt, they're a little bit sinful, but when you start putting labels to it, like the Ten Commandments, then it compounds their guilt and their awareness. And Paul says it this way in Romans 7, verse 7, What shall we say? That the law is sin, that the Ten Commandments is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, if it hadn't been for the Ten Commandments, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law has said you shall not covet. Paul says, listen, you can be very generic about sin, but the Ten Commandments puts a label on it and makes it something that is tangible. Murder, adultery, theft, lying blasphemy, coveting, dishonoring your parents, taking the Lord's name in vain, breaking the Sabbath, creating an idol, having another God before God. And Martin Luther said this, the principal point of the law is to make people not better but worse. It shows them their sin so that they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken and by this may be driven to seek comfort, and so to come to Jesus. The law is meant to crush you and show you how you can't keep it and how you're guilty and you need Jesus. So the first use of the law is for non-Christians to understand their guilt. Now, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Galatians, Galatians, Galatians chapter 3. And Paul in Galatians and in Romans, both especially, teach law and gospel distinction. I mean, the whole Bible does that, but Paul deals a lot with justification by faith alone and the role of the law. And he makes some interesting statements here about what the law did to us, what the law does to you as a non-Christian. So we're talking about the role of the Ten Commandments in the life of a non-Christian. So, all of us here tonight are probably Christians, so the law does not relate to us as a crushing effect to lead us to Jesus because we're already in Christ. This is something that non-Christians need to understand, okay? Galatians chapter 3, let's start in verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, 
then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So what Paul's saying here is he's basically saying, if the Old Testament can give life, it would, but it can't. The law cannot give life. All the law can do in the life of a non-Christian is stop you dead in your tracks and show you that you're toast and that you're guilty. And look at the two metaphors that Paul gives as far as what your life is. He says that we are perpetually in a state of being confined or imprisoned under the law. Notice what he says there. Verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Verse 23, we we were held captive under the law. Okay, I don't mean to pick on anybody that works at DOC. I don't think anybody works at DOC out here. Um, Some of your, well, your dad doesn't work there anymore. He's retired, so, well. So picture a crusty old prison guard that all he does is yell at you and hit the, hit the, um, the sides of the, of, the, of the cell and just like this cranky prison master that's always coming at you. That's the role of the law in the life of a non-Christian. You're, in, you're imprisoned by it. It's uncomfortable. It keeps you bound because it doesn't give life. All it does is it leads you to despair when you see how much you've fallen short. So it's a prison guard. It keeps you in prison. But then in verse 24, Paul introduces another metaphor. He says that we, um, it was a guardian. The law was our guardian until Christ came. Um, the word there is pedagogos. We get the word pedagogy. There's really no good word in the English language to translate this. Um, I think that, that New American Standard probably has the best translation. It says disciplinarian. Uh, the King James doesn't really help much by calling it a schoolmaster because we don't really know. What it means is this. In that ancient culture, that Roman culture that Paul was writing in, a pedagogos was a household slave whose goal was to raise and discipline the children. So often in these wealthy households, the mom and dad would not actually raise the children. It would be like a nanny, but a harsh nanny. Okay? Like a mother superior nanny that came around with the, with the, um, <laughs> with, with the, the ruler to like slap you on the wrist. And what this nanny or this supervisor or this disciplinarian or this pedagogos did is they provided round-the-clock round supervision They were often domineering and harsh to the children. They would do corporal punishment. They would spank the children and and hurt them. And so the image here of the law and the life of a non-Christian that Paul gives in this verse is you are held prison by the law and you are being disciplined by the law. All the law does is to show you how much you are under sin, under the law. So the first use of the law is for the non-Christian 
it's like a it's like a disciplinarian it's like a prison guard it's it's basically driving you to despair to show you that yes i'm a adulterer at heart yes i'm a liar yes i'm a thief yes i disobey my parents yes i i'm a coveter yes i'm an idolater all these things are true of me and i can't do anything to get myself out of it all i've got to do is cast myself at jesus to save me i can't save myself because i am toast that's the first use of the law because here's the standard that god gives James 2, 10-11. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty at all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you become a transgressor of the law. So it's like this. What James and what Paul says in other places is, okay, the standard is 100% perfection. And if you get 99%, that would be great. Well, like if you're taking a test... Like I teach a CCU class right now. If a student gets a 99% on a, out of 100, that would be a good grade, right? It, most people here would be happy with a 99%. Okay, but what's, what's the problem? You're 1% short of 100% perfection. And that 1% you're short means that you've failed all of it. So not, your grade's not a 99%. Because you failed on that 1%, what's your grade? It's a zero. Even though you got 99% right, that 1% you didn't get right means that you broke all of it and your grade's a zero. It's the same thing with the law. You can do your best to keep all of it, but if you break one little infraction, you've broken all of it. So God's standard in His law for the non-Christian is perpetual, perfect, personal obedience. And what's the point? None of us can do it. So Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritans, said this, about the law. He says it's a mirror, a mirror to show our sins that seeing our pollution and misery, we may be forced to flee to Christ to satisfy our guilt and to save us from future wrath. Okay, what does a mirror do? Some of you are like, I don't like looking in the mirror. What, what does a mirror do? A mirror shows reality. It doesn't hide anything. It shows you for what you are when you look at yourself in the mirror. The law is a mirror basically saying this is who you are before God and the picture's not good. You're toast. You fall short. And so we have to be wounded by the law in order to see our need for Christ. So the first use or the first purpose of the Ten Commandments is for the non-Christian. Now, I'm making that very clear. It's for the non-Christian, the person that's not saved yet. The purpose of the law is to crush them, to leave them in the dirt, to show that they can't hold up, hold up to it, and to drive them to Christ. Okay, that's, that's use number one, the role of the Ten Commandments. Okay, second use, and I'm not going to spend very much time on this. The second use of the Ten Commandments is a moral standard to govern society. Let me just ask you a question. Is it a good thing that the Ten Commandments are obeyed in the United States? Just so there's not anarchy. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Do you want people murdering each other? Do you want people stealing from each other? Do you want people cheating on each other? And lying in court to one another? Okay, it seems like that's kind of what's going on in our world. But even though non-Christians live in America, the Ten Commandments is this overall rule of faith that makes cultures not chaotic. Because we're created in the image of God, and we have a conscience 
we should have some type of moral standard for society. So God has established his moral law to be used by governments to curb anarchy and maintain justice and peace in society. Almost all cultures, whether they know it or not, have some form of the Ten Commandments to govern their society. Because if not, there's just going to be pure anarchy. People stealing, lying, murdering, um, and things like that. So first use of the law is for non-Christians to show them their need for Christ and they can't keep the law. Second use of the law is the Ten Commandments are good for cultures, for societies to keep things sane and to to impose God's justice when there's lawbreakers. But the the third use is what I want to talk most about tonight. And that is once we are Christians, the, the Ten Commandments don't like suddenly disappear. The Ten Commandments are a rule of obedience given for believers. First use, non-believers. Second use, society at large. Third use, believers. Those of us who are Christians, how do we relate to the Ten Commandments? So the third use is for us as believers after we've been saved. The, The Ten Commandments are still morally binding on us as God's moral will for our lives. We're not saved by them, but we're still expected to obey them. So here's the question for tonight. What role does the Ten Commandments have in my life as a Christian? Are you under the Ten Commandments as a method for your salvation? No. Are you to obey the Ten Commandments to live a healthy and happy Christ-honoring life? Yes. You don't obey the Ten Commandments to get saved. You obey them because you have been saved. Remember the order in Exodus? God saved Israel first and then gave them the Ten Commandments. God has saved you first and then given you the Ten Commandments to walk in those good works. So it's not for your salvation. So let's just kind of give three things here that you need to understand about the role of the Ten Commandments in your life as a believer. Number one, we do not obey the law to be righteous before God. Okay, that's very clear in the Bible. You don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to get a right relationship with God. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. You're not saved by works. You're saved by grace alone. You don't obey the Ten Commandments in order to get saved. <clears throat> Yet, as believers, the law is a rule of life that shows us how we ought to obey God specifically. And then here's the third big thing that I've left out up to this point that's the most important. The Holy Spirit empowers us by grace to joyfully obey God's law. There are some groups (coughs) that believe that we no longer need to have the Ten Commandments. And as a matter of fact, they'll go to Romans. Just just turn your Bible. I'll show you what verse they go to. This is not in your notes But they'll go to Romans chapter 6. And they'll take a verse out of context and build this idea. And they're halfway right, but they're halfway wrong. Okay? It would be be Romans 6.14. 
They'll, they'll go to Romans 6. Is everybody there? Romans 6.14. This is not in your notes, but I'm, just, I'm bringing this up because it just popped into my mind. This is a verse some will use to say that, well, the Ten Commandments are no longer binding on Christians. Um, and they'll say this. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but you're under grace. We're not under law. We're under grace. You're not under law anymore. You're under grace. Now, we have to understand what that means. You're not under law as a way to get saved. You're saved by grace. But does that mean that now that you're saved by grace, the law just disappears and there's no relationship that you have to the Ten Commandments at all? No. It's still morally binding for Christians. You're not under the law as a way to get saved, but you you should obey it as a way to be pleasing to God. Not to earn salvation, but because you have already been saved. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.8, We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully the ten commandments are good the ten commandments are good if you obey them in the power of the spirit now there are those who would say this wow salvation by grace alone through faith alone and christ alone is wonderful my sins have been forgiven i've got my free ticket to heaven all my sins are forgiven i know i can't lose my salvation i know i have a free home in heaven i know that i can never be blotted out of god's lamb or the lamb's book of life once saved always saved therefore i can live however i want because after all, I said the prayer and walked the aisle and got baptized. It doesn't matter how I live because I said the prayer. Okay, is that a biblical attitude? No. Paul says in Romans 6, 1 through 2, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Okay, so here's the, here's the attitude some people have. Okay, this is not new to me. This is something Michael Horton says. Michael Horton's a professor of theology at Westminster Seminary in California. He, he has a lot of books I've read. I listen to his podcast, White Horse Inn, but he says it like this. I love sinning. God loves forgiving. This is a great relationship. Let's just keep it going. I like to send my heart out. God likes to forgive, so I might as well send my heart out so God can keep forgiving me. And, and Paul says, by no means. That's not what should happen. Now, this attitude... Some people call it free grace, do whatever you want. Let me give you the theological term so that you can go home having a big word that you knew tonight, okay? So the word is called antinomianism. Like, ooh, I can go home and say, are you an antinomian? Ooh, are you an antinomian? Let me tell you what the two words mean, okay? Now, does anybody know what the word anti means? Anti means against. When you're anti something, you're against it. Nomian comes from the Greek word nomos, which means law. So antinomian literally means against the law, or I have no use for God's Ten Commandments in my life, or I could live however I want to live. It doesn't matter about holiness. It doesn't matter about obedience. Once saved, always saved. I got my free ticket to heaven. I can live however I want. That's antinomianism. Some people call it license. Some people call it free grace. Some people call it stupid or whatever you want to call it. But it's this whole attitude that God doesn't care about how you live your life because all he cares about is you're, you're saved. 
The Bible does not allow you to do that because if you're truly justified, you will demonstrate sanctification. Or let's put it this way. If you are truly born again, there will be fruit. You can't have an anti-law attitude towards the Ten Commandments. You can't say, hey, I'm a Christian, but I don't want anything to do with living for obedience to the Ten Commandments. And, and by the way, why would you? That's kind of a dumb argument. Let, let's, take it, let's take it logically. Let's say you're a Christian. You come to me and you say, you know what? We're under law, not grace. Okay, and so, 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 so you're against the Ten Commandments, right? Well, that was for the Old Testament, and, and I don't really have to obey them anymore because I'm under grace. It's all about love. Okay, so if I go kill your wife, how are you going to feel about that? Because it says do not murder. What happens if I lie to you? How are you going to feel about that? What happens if I commit adultery with your wife? How are you going to feel about that? So it doesn't make any sense to say I'm against the Ten Commandments because when you think about it logically, why would you? Because these are God's rules that are binding for all people to live by. So here's the point. If you live by the Ten Commandments, not as a way to get saved, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a good way to live. It is a blessed and healthy and fruitful way to live. So here's the point. If you are truly justified, you're united to Christ, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and you're going to want to live for holiness. You're not going to have that attitude that I can live however I want. Deuteronomy 30, I know this is Old Testament, but it kind of gets to the essence of kind of what our attitude should be as Christians towards God's law. Deuteronomy 30, 16. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in His ways, and by keeping His commandments and His statutes and His rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. Here's a very simple principle for Christians to live by. If you live by the power of the Spirit in accordance with the Ten Commandments, you will have a blessed life. Now, what's the opposite of that? If, as a Christian, you live in opposition to the Ten Commandments in your flesh, you're going to have a rough life. Now, that's not an absolute statement. I'm not saying that's going to happen to every single person, but the Bible tends to tell you that when you live in obedience to God, there are blessings. It will go well for you in general, in a general principle. See, here's the thing. You are a new creation in Christ. And what has to be there? 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What's, what's happened? The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, giving you the power to live in accordance with the Ten Commandments as a healthy rule for living so that you're doing what God expects you to do. You don't have to guess. Like there's ten of them, okay? You don't have to guess what God's standard is because He's given us ten to make it very easy for us. Now there's a lot of other commands in the Bible. There's a lot of other laws, but they all kind of tie back to the Ten Commandments, whether outwardly or in the heart. And by the way, let's just stop and talk about this. For every one of the Ten Commandments, there's an outward sin and there's a sin of the heart. Have you ever thought about that? Can you not honor your parents by not obeying them when they tell you to take out the trash if you're a kid? Okay, 
Yeah, you can dishonor them by not obeying them physically, but if they ask you to take out the trash and you do it the whole time cussing under your breath and having a bad attitude, are you honoring your parents even though you're physically doing what they ask you to do? Can you not physically commit adultery with a woman but still have lust in your heart? Can you have a lying thought? So, so what I'm saying is that th- there are outward actions related to the Ten Commandments, but tied to every one of the outward actions of the Ten Commandments, there's a sin of the heart behind it. What's the one commandment? Well, let's, let's talk about two. What are the two commandments that are sins of the heart? Primarily sins of the heart. The first and the tenth. What's the first commandment? You shall have no other gods. That's an attitude of the heart. What's the last commandment? You shall not covet. That's a sin of the heart. So God's grace in your life through the Holy Spirit helps you to obey and say no to sin. Titus 11, I mean Titus 11, Titus 2, 11 through 14. There's not 11 chapters in Titus. Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does this grace do? It trains us to renounce or to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God's grace in the Holy Spirit living inside you empowers you to obey the Ten Commandments and to do good works. So we ought to approach God's law as a perfect standard that requires, that's an expression of His moral character, and we should desire to obey them. So, so here's, the, here's the point okay, in sanctification. If you find yourself as a Christian not having the desire to want to obey God, there's something wrong. Now, do you always obey? No. But do you have a desire? If you don't desire it, there's probably something wrong. If fundamentally, as a new creation in Christ, you don't have a desire to want to obey Christ, there's probably something wrong there. It could be a hard heart. It could be you're drifting. It could be you're distracted. It could be that you've got some sin in your life that you need to deal with. Um, but listen to these psalms. They're all from Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is all, it's the longest of all the psalms, and it's a psalm about the Word of God. And it says, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Okay, which, so let's, let's look at this. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Let's look at that verse. Which comes first? Running in the commandments or having an enlarged heart? Which one comes first? You tell me. Which one comes first? When, let's, let's, like, I will run. Is that future tense? I will run, future, when you enlarge my heart. So here's the point. When God comes and does a work in your heart, it will want you to want to run in His commandments. In other words, here's what the psalmist is saying the Holy Spirit will stir up within you a desire for you to want to obey. You can't produce this desire on your own. It's got to come from the Holy Spirit. 
And then do you say this, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation, meditation, meditation all the day long. Okay, let's talk about first use of the law, second use of the law in relation to how we view God. So let's review. First use of the law is for non-Christians, right? To crush them, to show them that they can't keep the law. Third use of the law is for Christians, and we have to obey them as a general rule for living. Okay, so in, as a non-Christian, how, what is your relationship to God? Let me just ask it this way. As a non-Christian, is God your father or is God your judge? God's your judge. So as a non-Christian, you are relating to God as a judge who has every right to sentence you to death because you are guilty. And the law cannot produce life. The law cannot produce righteousness. You are dead. You're condemned. And God has every right to judge you. So the only way that you relate to God in the first use of the law is as a judge. Now what happens when you become a Christian? How do you relate to God now? Is he your judge? No, he's your heavenly father who loves you. And he's not going to condemn you because he's already punished your sins in Christ. And so now you want to obey him because he's your dad. He's your father. You want to please him. And you know that when you fall short, you're not going to stop being his child. He may discipline you, but he's still going to love you. He's not going to kick you out of the family. He's not going to kick you to the curb. He's your heavenly father. So there's a distinction between a non-Christian is under God's wrath. God is judge, first use of the law. It's to crush you. Christian, we relate to God as a heavenly father who loves us, who saves us. Third use of the law, the Ten Commandments is still there, but we obey them because we want to, because we want to please God. Not out of fear that he's going to punish us, but because we want to please our father. That's the difference between the two. Now, let's ask a question. Are you saved for good works? Yes. What specifically are those good works? That's kind of a generic word, isn't it? Like, go do some good works. Okay, what are those good works I'm supposed to go do? I think we know. Like, we can get very specific. Like, we can sit here and list all the good works we can do. But the objective standard of what we're supposed to do or what defines a good work comes from the summary of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments to a scribe that comes up to him in Mark chapter 12, verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That is a commandment that we are to obey. That's not gospel. That's a commandment. Now, the first four commandments, no other God, no idols, no taking the Lord's name in vain, and resting on the Sabbath are all expressions of how you love the Lord. Tangibly. How you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, there's a second question 
or the second commandment. Mark 12, 31, Jesus goes on and says, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So commandments 5 through 10 are objective, specific ways you can do good works in loving your neighbor. So the Ten Commandments are summarized in the first and great, first, the greatest commandment and the second greatest commandment. So the question is, how do we specifically know how to love God and love our neighbor and walk in these good works? You want some specifics? Well, the Ten Commandments. God has graciously given us the Ten Commandments as the eternal binding rule for living. We don't have to guess what God expects of us. And we obey out of gratitude and joy, not a burden or fear. Now, here's the big question. Let me ask you the question. What's the difference, the fundamental difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? There's a lot, but what's the fundamental difference? Does a non-Christian have the Holy Spirit? No. Does a Christian have the Holy Spirit? Yes. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is the helper. He is the comforter. He's the one who strengthens us. He's the one who enables us. He's the one who empowers us. He's the one who gives us grace. So any ability we have, so sanctification is all about the Holy Spirit. Any ability we have to follow Jesus, to, to grow in Christ, to put sin to death, to obey the Ten Commandments, comes from the Holy Spirit. And there's a, the New Covenant Okay, God made a lot of covenants in the Old Testament. He made a covenant with Adam. He made a covenant with Noah. He made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with David. But then in Jeremiah, there's a new covenant. And the new covenant was not realized or come to fruition in the Old Testament. It was promised in the Old Testament, but it didn't come true until Jesus came. But what was the new covenant promise? What did God promise to the Israelites and by extension us in that passage in Jeremiah? So Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 is a very famous passage of scripture in the Old Testament that talks about the new covenant and what God's going to do. Behold, the days are coming, are coming. They're not here yet when, when, when this is written. The days are to coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Okay, what was that old covenant that he made with them? The Ten Commandments outwardly written on stone that they were to obey. Okay, they broke it. They didn't obey. God's going to do something new. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen very carefully. I will put my law where? What does the Bible say? Within them. And I'll write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of these to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. When Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he inaugurated the new covenant. 
And when he poured out his spirit, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so how did the law come to the nation of Israel? On tablets of stone on the mountain when Moses came down. How does the law come to us as Christians now? On tablets of stone outside of ourselves? Or does God do something in our hearts to give us the power to obey them? He writes them on our hearts. He gives us the Holy Spirit to give us the power to do that. This is what happened when you got saved. Ezekiel 36 talks about this day as well. So Jeremiah, New Covenant. Ezekiel kind of talks about this New Covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26-27. I will give you a new heart. It's God speaking. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And, and notice what that spirit within you is going to do. Cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So how can we walk in the statutes of God and how can we obey His rules? Because the Holy Spirit will be living inside of us, giving us the power to do that. The law will be written in our hearts through the power of the Spirit. So here's the thing. As those with a new identity in Christ, we now have both the ability and the desire to obey due to the Spirit's work within us. Okay, so here's the thing, guys. And I'm going to say this every week about, regen- about sanctification. Two things about what happens before and after your salvation. Before you were saved, you did not have two things. You did not have the desire to want to obey, and you did not have the ability or the power to obey. So you didn't have the desire or the power. Why? No Holy Spirit. I didn't want to. I didn't have the want to. I didn't have the can do. Okay. I didn't have the want to obey. I didn't have the can do. I couldn't obey and I didn't want to obey. Now, what happens when you get saved and the Holy Spirit lives within you? What happens to you now? Now you have those two things that you didn't have before. You have the desire. I want to obey. And you have the power or the ability. I can obey. So as a Christian, you can never say, I can't obey. As a non-Christian, you could say that. But as a Christian, you can't say, I can't obey, or I don't want to obey. Now, in your flesh, you will do that from time to time. But theologically, you can't say that because the Holy Spirit's living in you, giving you the desire and the power to do it. That's why, at times, this is such a battle in your sanctification. It's a battle between those two things. Sanctification boils down to, do I want to do it, and do I have the power to do it? Because sometimes I just don't want to. Because my flesh wants to do this. And I don't have the power to carry it out, so I need to rely upon the Holy Spirit. But here's the point in relationship to the law of God. God never lowers the bar of obedience once we've been saved by grace. The law of God does not threaten us anymore. First use of the law. We're not under its penalty or power. We do not obey the law as a means of justification or acceptance by God. Instead, the law of God serves as a holy guide for living and we do this in glad obedience to him on a daily basis first john chapter 5 verses 2 and 3 by this we know that we love the children of god when we love god and obey his commandments 
For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. Why are His commandments? So we're called to obey His commandments. And we want to love God, we want to obey His commandments, but why does John say there His commandments aren't burdensome? What does it mean to be burdensome? They're not a burden. They're not difficult. Or they shouldn't be difficult. Why? Because we have the desire and the ability given to us in the Holy Spirit to want to obey, and we can obey. So as a Christian, obeying God should never be a drudgery. It should never be a duty. It should never be something that you um, just hate doing. Now, that doesn't mean that you're never going to, it's always going to be happy, and you're always going to want to do God's will. But fundamentally, you're a new creation in Christ, and those desires have been changed, and the Holy Spirit should be slowly, incrementally changing you to want to obey the Lord. So, the third use of the law, of the Ten Commandments, means we're not saved by keeping the law, but as those who've already been saved by grace and indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we can joyfully obey the Ten Commandments and become more holy every day. So, tonight's theme was sanctification involves us obeying the Ten Commandments as a rule for living, as we're empowered to do them by the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for this time tonight. Lord, I know this, this topic is a little bit difficult as we think about our relationship to the Ten Commandments. But Lord, the bottom line is, is we want to obey you. We want to be those that um, are faithful to your word. And we know that we can because the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so thank you, Holy Spirit, for writing that law in our heart, for taking out our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh and giving us the power and the ability to obey. And Lord, help us to see just what non-believers are under, that they're under the power of sin, that they're under the law. And Lord, um, help us to, to understand how we can share the gospel with them to show them their need for Jesus. And so Lord, give us strength to be able to be obedient to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.